This week, we're going to talk about what do we do when God answers our prayer? Because I think equally important, it's good for us to know how to wait, but it's good for us to know when God hears our prayer and he provides for us, he gives us this provision that we've been asking for, whatever it is, what is it that we're supposed to do with it? So that's where we're going to start out today. And specifically, we're going to talk about being stewards of provision that God gives us. Now, I'm going to define what a steward is. I'm going to define what provision is. Before we do that, I'm going to read this story. And this story I'm about to read, it's got some things that make you say, say what? And some things like, I can't believe he would. And some other dramatic moments. And it's a bit, it, 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 and I, I'm going to admittedly say this, I don't normally read this much of a chunk of scripture, but I thought it was really important because the story is so, so important for the handful of weeks that we're going to be moving into. This story is about a guy named Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 1. We're going we're gonna to read about this guy, Abraham. Abraham was a patriarch of faith. God came to him and gave him a promise. And he said that you are going to be the person who is going to have a legacy of nations through you. In fact, as many stars as you can see in the sky is what scripture says. What God told Abraham, here was the only problem. Abraham said, thank you, God, for telling me about the legacy, but I have no lineage. See, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, didn't have any children. Sarah was barren and isn't that kind of God's funny way to give you a promise sometimes? And where you sit, you think this is impossible because I am bare of the resource necessary for this to happen. But God follows through in his promise and gives Abraham and Sarah a son whose name is Isaac. And God then asked Abraham to do something with Isaac that I, every time I read this, I cannot wrap my head around. Verse one, sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What in the world are you talking about? As a dad, like, what? <laughs> this is my prized possession. The deepest desire of my heart. And we waited. And this is also the thing, this is the natural piece that was needed in my life for the legacy that you promised me, and now you're telling me to sacrifice him. In Abraham's obedience, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He doesn't even hesitate. He took with him two of his serv servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. While I and the boy go over there, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. 
And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham, he says, Father, now, very smart kid. We got the fire. You got the knife. And you made me carry the stupid wood. You get where Isaac is going? He's like, uh, where's the sacrifice? He says, yes, my son. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. I mean, I just can't even imagine this. Like, He bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I, I, would, be a, I would be a mess right now if I was Abraham. Like I, emotionally, I would be a wreck. Then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. With great exclamation. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son and your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. Or perhaps you've heard this name before. This is, this is the word in Hebrew is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. There's such a deep conviction in that. Like the Lord will provide. Dad, we got the wood, we got the fire, where's the lamb? The Lord will provide. The Lord comes through for him. And he calls that very place, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. We're going to talk about two things today. Number one, what is a steward? And we're going to talk about having a lifestyle of stewardship. Before we get there, understanding the backdrop to the story is, is that Abraham understood one thing. That he prayed to God and God gave him provision he prayed and said, God, would you give my wife and I a son? And God supplied the resource for the legacy. He gave him a son. And Abraham understood something very well. He understood that he was not the owner of Isaac, that God was. And he was there to steward the resource that he had been provided. Now, before I get into steward and what that means, I wanted to find for us provision. A lot of times, especially in faith circles, church, spiritual talk, Christianese, you know, all the words that, you know, we say that we don't realize we say, but someone who's not a Christian is like, what? What's that? Stewardship and provision, those are those types of words sometimes. Provision to a lot of people in 
faith circles means money. Can I, can I tell you? Jehovah Jireh, he's our provider. Someone in the room's got $1,000. God's saying right now. And I think it trips us up a little bit. Now, I want to say that provision is resource, but let me broaden this. This is what resource is. This is what provision is. It's food, shelter, family, friends. It's good health. It's your time. What are you doing with your time? In the last eight months, we've been in quarantine, lockdowns, COVIDs, protests, mid-presidential election, mayhem, shootings, fill in the blank. I love it. My wife chose with her time to continue her education. I think she handled that provision well, right? She could have sat on the couch and been like super bummed out. I'm stuck at home with these seven kids. Everyone in the house is on a Zoom call. We just gave up. We just Zoom call each other from upstairs. <clears throat> and on top of all that, it does mean finances. Okay? But these are all provisions that God has given to us. Isaac was provision that God had given to Abraham. And Abraham was stewarding this provision with faithfulness. Now, let's define what a steward is. Many of you might remember this. If you ever flew on an airplane years ago, what was the person that would help you when you got on the plane? Stewardess. We don't call them stewardess anymore because that's not politically correct. So they're called what? Flight attendants. So they attend to the flight. But a steward... I actually like the word stewardess or steward because it has, it has a deeper connotation. This is what it means. If you're going to verb the word steward, so you have, to, you have to forgive me because I just make words up, but if you have the microphone, you can make words up. I have the microphone. So if you're verbing, so that's the verb tense of verb <laughs> is to, to verb. If you're verbing, if you add an ing to anything, you can do it, Okay. If you're verbing, it means to manage or look after another's property. Okay? If you're verbing this word steward, it's to manage or look after another's property. Uh, that plane is not the steward or stewardess's plane. Whoever owns that plane is the owner. Okay? They're just managing it. But they're also nouning. Okay? The noun form of steward is a fiscal agent one who actively directs affairs, an overseer, a house distributor, a house manager. So here we have a steward or stewardess. This is why I like the word steward or stewardess. It has a deeper connotation. That you are the manager of this house that's flying a 747 through the air. You're the manager of the house. The manager of the house is there to serve the needs of the house. Flight attendant just says, I'm here to attend to the flight. Steward says, I'm here to attend to the heart. Biblical stewardship, because we can steward things, and we can do it with a, with a motivation that 
hey, we should be good stewards, but let's, this is what biblical stewardship is. is re, it's, to be a biblical steward is to be responsible to manage all the resources of life. All the resources of life are all those things that we talked about. Provision. Okay? Responsible to manage all the resources of life for the glory of who? God. I can be a, I can be a good steward culturally and manage all the resources I have in life for the glory of who? Me. But to be a biblical steward says that I'm God-centered and I'm going to manage everything that God, you have given me as the provider and I'm the recipient of that. You're the owner. I'm the overseer. Okay? You're the owner. I'm the overseer. Stewards are overseers as opposed to owners. And we like to be an owner in America. Okay? What's the American dream? To do what? Own a home. Which is really funny because you don't actually own your home. And some of you may have paid off your home. Most of us, they don't, we don't own our home. We've been duped. You know who owns your home? The bank. And you have something called a mortgage, which in the Latin is a derivative of a death note. Mortier. Mortgage. Death. You are paying, I am paying a death bill every single month. I'm refinancing my death note. Are you with me? But we like the idea of ownership so much, they go, just tell them that they own it. And we go, oh, you're just renting your house? Oh, I own. Next time, if you rent and somebody says that to you, say, no, you're just tied to death. You're bound to a death note. I'm not. I'm living in someone else's death note. (laughs) Whatever happens, I'm good. (laughs) You know? So this idea of ownership is so ingrained in us, we've made it like a constitutional right. Right? We have have political parties run on this fact that it's a right, homeowner, and there's lots of great things in homeownership, don't get me wrong, but... We have put so much focus on this idea of ownership. And let me tell you something. Whether I'm paying a mortgage, I'm renting, or I've paid my house off, I don't own it. Who owns it? God owns it. I am an overseer of all of the resources that I've been given in life to manage for the glory of one, God. So God, do you want my house? Okay. Cool. Why? I don't own it. <laughs> I'm just the house manager. This, this idea started in the very beginning of creation with this guy named Adam and this wonderful lady named Eve, his partner in life, his wife. This is what it says. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Take care of it, to care for it, to keep it. God entrusted man to be the overseer of all he had created from the beginning of time. So you may be listening this morning, and you could be here on campus. You could be in our, our online campus. You could be listening to this later in the week. 
And you may say, well, God, I don't even believe in God. So, Pat, this whole idea of biblical stewardship, and this is like, that's great. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm trying to find something, but I don't know what it is, but I don't believe in God. So I don't know that this whole idea pertains to me. Here's the funny thing. Mankind, whether you believe in God or not, mankind was given the collective responsibility to have dominion over the earth, to care for it, and to manage it for God's glory. That fact doesn't change just because you or I believe in God or not, or a follower of Jesus or not. Genesis 1.28, just before the scripture I just read, says, God blessed them, who? Adam and Eve. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Who? Hallelujah. Amen. I did that. Okay. Seven times. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Here's, here's the deal. Being a steward for God is who we were created to be as humans. You don't have to believe in God to understand this point. This is what we were created to do. Number two, stewardship is a lifestyle. This is in the New King James Version. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And they're talking to him about, like, they, they were very inquisitive and they asked the craziest questions. And then they would have to, like, Jesus would have to reiterate because they were, you know, a little thick in the skull. I can relate. So Jesus probably was like, dude, <laughs> let me say it this way. I think Jesus sometimes was like, let me say it this way, Okay. Lots of examples. Lots of, Jesus used lots of, lots of stories to try to get these guys to understand. So they're talking about the fact that Jesus is going to come back. See, Jesus hadn't died yet in this conversation, but he's kind of like the Son of Man is going to do this thing. He's, he's gonna, you know, essentially telling them he's going to die on the cross. Without being explicit, he's going to die on the cross. He's going to overcome death. He's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where Jesus is now, okay, because we're post that. We read this. That's, that was history. That happened but we're still waiting for the, the time that Jesus comes back. Are you with me? Okay. So Jesus is kind of having this conversation with him, and he's saying to him, hey, listen, you're not going to know the time or the place. It's going to happen anywhere, anytime. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus is like, the Son of Man is going to come back, boom, like that. And it's kind of like, the story. you better be ready. And so he says, and the Lord said, meaning Jesus, who then... Is that faithful and wise steward? Who is that faithful and wise steward? Whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. Who is it? And then he goes on and he says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes back. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And blessed is that servant who is being a good steward when he comes back. The first thing Jesus addresses in this whole thing is this question, who? He doesn't ask what. He says who? Lifestyle is who you are. Your lifestyle is a derivative, comes from who you are, not what you do. 
So when we talk about a lifestyle of stewardship, this is the question of who are you? Who you are will always dictate what you do. Okay, we ask this question a lot to our young. They're in high school. What are you going to do for the rest of your life? What are you going to do? They don't know what they're going to do. I'm almost 50. I don't know what I'm going to do. Can I just be fair? I don't want to answer the question what I'm going to do. I ask all of my children this question. Was a youth pastor asked this question? I've seen the fruit of this question being buried deep inside of people's hearts and them, and them answering this question. Who do you want to be? But what about what? It doesn't matter what. You'll figure the what out when you determine the who. Well, my friends are doing X, Y, Z. You know, that can be applied not just to high schoolers. That can be applied all the way up until, like, we're empty nesters and we've already retired. And all my friends are, you know, they're, they're buying houseboats in Florida and they've got vacation homes. And I want to live like that as a retired person. You're, you're focused on the what. You better answer the who. Who do you want to be? That will tell you what. Lifestyle, a lifestyle of stewardship is about being more than doing. It's about being more than doing. Being speaks to the who. That's your identity. Are you being a steward? That would be a lifestyle of stewardship. That's who you are. That speaks to your identity. Are you doing stewardship? You're wedding. There is, there is an action. But did you know that I can do something without being something? <laughs> this seems like semantics, but I want you to catch the language here. I'm raising my children. Or, I am a father. There's a difference. I'm raising my children is the what? It's the action. I'm doing something. But when I say I am a father, watch what comes after the words I am in your life. What I'm doing is I'm coming into an agreement with fatherhood and saying I am a father. Now, based on my identity as a father, who I am, it's going to determine what I'm going to do with my seven daughters. I am a father. So it makes a difference. You say, I am a steward of all that God's given me. Or we could just be doing and say, hey, I'm stewarding whatever God gives me. No, I am a steward. And it makes a difference. And when something becomes part of your identity... It's because you have a deep conviction of something. This is important. It comes from deep conviction. Who you are is based on your convictions, not your commitments. Who you are is based on your convictions, not commitments. Commitment is an act in an instance, 
So it can be done for a time period. So you're committed to your job. That means from nine to five, what do you do? You clock in. But after five, you're no longer committed to that work. If you're a business owner, maybe it's the flip. Maybe you need to learn to not be committed to your work after five, right? Maybe you need to be committed to your family. But I'm going to tell you what's going to drive that is your conviction. Because your, convic- your conviction is 24-7, 365 days a year. It never quits. Why? Because it's who you are. You wake me up any time of the day and ask me my name. I'm Pat. Hello. Are you who you are between 9 and 5? Are you a follower of Jesus for a specific time of the day? Do you take, do you take your steward hat off? Do you take your, take your follower of Jesus hat off? That means you're committed, but there's no conviction. I am a follower of Jesus. There's a conviction. Commitments are an act or an instance, and what you do comes from your commitments. So I'm committed to things, you're committed to things, and we do things based on those commitments. But they're negotiable. Because we move our commitments around all the time, don't we? Convictions are firmly held beliefs. I love this description. A judgment of guilt in a court of law. If you're convicted in a court of law, you're found guilty of doing something. Now, who you are comes from your convictions. They are 100% non-negotiable. Sorry. Sorry, I'm not going to go do that what? Because I know who I am, and that's non-negotiable. This is how I'm going to handle the provision that God's given me. But that's not, that's not what everyone else is doing. I don't care what they're doing. This is non-negotiable because I know who I am. And I am a, I am a faith. He says, who then is the faithful and wise steward? I am a faithful and wise steward of what God has given me. And my convictions will always determine my commitments. And I love when he, when he talks about blessed is the servant, who essentially I find doing the faithful and wise stewarding when I show up. That's possible because the master should be able to catch the servant doing it any time of the day because when you have a deep conviction, it's 365, 24-7, it's non-negotiable. It doesn't matter what time you show up in my life. I'm going to be that very thing that you're looking for. I love that God found Abraham in the midst of this, being a faithful and wise steward, evidenced by what he was willing to do. We're going to talk about, for the next handful of weeks, what it looks like for us to be faithful and wise stewards, to be faithful and wise stewards of the resources that God has given us. Am I faithful and wise steward of my health? Am I faithful, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual? Am I faithful and wise steward 
of my health. We're, we're going to talk about my faithful and wise steward of the relationships that I have, of the material things that I've been given, of my finances. We're going to walk through these things, how to be, because that's important. We need to know that. But today, what we need to come to grips with is that we need to answer this question. If God wants us to live a lifestyle of stewardship by being a faithful and wise steward, having a deep conviction, that means we will be able to say, God, here I am. Here I am. And what follows is defining. Here I am, a faithful and wise steward. Here's some questions. Who is the true owner of all the provision that you've been given? Sometimes in my life I go, God, you are the true owner of this over here. (laughs) And I'm clearly the overseer, but over here, I own this. Sometimes we're willing to give ownership to God because just that area of our life is just miserable. God, you own that. I'm always wary of people that are like, hey, I have some free donations that I want to give to the church. And when we first started our church, we we had to begin making a disclaimer. We are not a junk drawer. If you don't want it because it's beat up and old, why would you give it to me? Is that your best? And sometimes we do that with God. We're like, well, God, this isn't my best, so you you can have that. Who is the true owner of everything that you've been provided? Do your commitments match your convictions? Some of us are feeling this deep tension in our lives, a struggle in our lives. And the reason we, f- we feel that struggle so much is because our commitments don't match our convictions. Your convictions, this deep sense of who you are, is at battle with the things that you're doing. Why am I doing this thing? It creates this tension. The, you, the tension is, is because who, who you actually are, who you want to be, who God says that you are, is having a fight right now with what you're doing. And lastly, could you be convicted in court of being a faithful and wise steward? If your life was laid bare right now in the court of heaven or in the court of your peers, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a faithful and wise steward? Does your employer, employees, your friends, your family, your kids, your neighbors, would they be able to stand as character witnesses for you and say, 100%, that's who Pat is? Or are they, are they going to be left in a lurch because they're going to be like, I, I don't know, actually, that's news to me. <laughs> I had no idea because based on what Pat does, it seems like he doesn't have a very deep conviction It's a deep question. 
Why don't you join me in standing? Let's pray. Father, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus, and this is what I ask. I, I, f- I, feel, like, I feel like what just happened was, over the last 20 minutes or so, is that this, this uh, weighted blanket was laid on our chest. Can you feel it? That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want to define that because it's not guilt. If you, if, if you aren't, if your convictions aren't matching your commitments, if you are not viewing things as overseer versus owner, it's, it's, God's not looking at you and shaking his finger at you, and that's not my heart. But the Holy Spirit does bring conviction. So I just want to speak to that. Because you're going to walk away today, and this is my prayer because we're going we're gonna to walk through some of the stuff in weeks to come. So here's my prayer. Father, I ask right now in the name of Jesus that the weight that some of us might feel, Lord, that you would begin working on our hearts because we need your Holy Spirit to work on our hearts. Not my words. It's not a convincing. God, we need the heart work of being as opposed to the hard work of doing. And so do work on our hearts. Prepare our hearts for the next handful of weeks. Prepare our minds. Prepare the relationships around us to have maybe tough conversations. Maybe maybe your conviction is going to lead to some things in relationships around you that need to change. Based on what God wants to do in your heart in terms of conviction, it's going to change your actions. And there's going to need to be strength in that and courage in that. But conviction, conviction will give you the strength and the courage. So God, prepare hearts. Today, let us leave here and take inventory of our lives. Take inventory of what you've given us and answer these key questions. Because God, you have created us all part of humanity that you created. You created us to be overseers with what you have ownership of. We thank you. Thank you for being gentle, God. For drawing us out, for asking hard questions and preparing our hearts. So prepare our hearts. In Jesus' powerful name, everyone said, amen and amen.